This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Psalm 63, 1 through 8. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole life brings being longs for you. In a dry and parched land where there is no water, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. I will be fully satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing, my lips, with singing, my lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed, I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night, because you are my help. I sing in the shadow of your wings. I cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. And uh, Merry Christmas. Yeah, already. I have a question for you as we get going here, and that is, uh, if you could get anything you wanted for Christmas... I mean, absolutely anything. What would you want? There was three guys walking along a beach one time. And they found a genie bottle. And so they pick it up. And uh, when one of them goes, well, rub it. See what happens. So he rubs it. And sure enough, a genie pops out. And the genie says, he sees three of them. He goes, I'll tell you what. Because there's three of you, I'm going to give each of you one wish, anything you could wish for. And the first guy, he knows right away because he always wanted to visit New Zealand. And so he goes, you know what I'd like? I'd like to go to New Zealand. Genie goes, okay, poof, he's gone. Second guy goes, that's a pretty good idea because I've always wanted to go to the Galapagos Islands. I want to go to the Galapagos Islands. And, and so Genie goes, okay, boom, he's gone. And third, third guy, Jenny goes, what do you want? He goes, I, I don't know. I'm kind of bummed my friends are gone. I wish they were here. <laughs> Boom. You know, what you want can be kind of tricky, can it not? It can be very tricky. We are, uh, we're in a series, uh, we've been in a series, excuse me, we've been in a series called Life Together, and we were looking at how in the community of faith, as, as people who are Christ followers, that we're intended to share life together. We're intended to share our burdens. We're intended to share our resources. We're in t- intended to share our joys and our sorrows. And that life was intended to be lived together. Starting next week, we start our Advent series. And that's why I say Merry Christmas. And I want to be the first to wish each and every one a Merry Christmas. But next week, we start our Advent series called the indescribable gift as we look at the person of Jesus Christ who is God's indescribable gift. How do you put words on that to us? And we'll be spending you know, the four weeks, the four Sundays leading up to Christmas. So we're in this in-between time, and I, I get to speak about whatever I want, whatever, you know, you know, and I... Somebody asked me, well, how did you decide? And I said, well, I prayed and God said, Psalm 63. Not really. That's not what happened. I just, you know. And I joked with other people that 
I always like to joke that I'm going to talk about the four horses of the apocalypse. Doesn't that sound interesting? But uh, I mentioned to Ben, who's known me for a while, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to speak on Psalm 63, I think. And he says, ah, one of your favorites. And he knows. So I thought, why is, it, why is Psalm 63 one of my favorite psalms? And, and it could be because, as we're going to talk about in a second, it's very deeply personal. It's intensely personal. But the other reason is, is right from the get-go, you have a sense of David's deep longings. He's laying his heart out on the table. And I feel like I've been a person who my tendency is to be very guarded. My heart is very guarded. And even my, my family and my friends closest to me sometimes, they say, what, you know, it's hard to discern sometimes where your real passion is and where your dreams are. And perhaps there's other people here in this room that are like that where we don't really let our heart out there too far. It's, it's very unruly. Our heart, those deep places in our life and the longings and the desires we have and the potential for disappointment and the potential... Uh, for disillusionment and all those things, it's better to keep a, a tight rein on that. And so I love David that he just puts it out there. And it calls my heart to do the same. It calls me to do the same. Um, I've got the remote in my pocket here. And what I'm going to do is we're going to go back through this phrase by phrase. And as we get to each slide, the very first thing I want you all to do is to read it aloud. Okay? And so I think, if I remember right, I'm going to practice on this very first one. Okay? So as you see it pop up, go ahead and just read what it says. Ready? Excellent. Very good. I think that was pretty good participation. We're shooting for 100%. Okay. Um, you know, in uh, I, I forget, I think it's the Hebrew Bible. This is verse 1. This is part of the biblical text. And we learn that it's a psalm that David wrote, and we learn that he was in the desert of Judah. So scholars go back and they say, well, when would that have been? So they're going to go back and they're going to take a look. Say, so when was David in the desert? And what would prompt him to write this? What clues would it give to us about this? Well, most scholars agree that it probably happened when David was on the run from his son Absalom. So I want to review that story for us real quick. Uh, David's family's messed up. You think you have family problems? David had family problems, okay? Uh, so one son rapes one of his daughters. Another son gets angry, partly because David hasn't been involved. He's, he's withdrawn from the whole situation. So Absalom kills his brother. And then he's a fugitive. And then at some point he's invited to come back. And there's a, there's a point of reconciliation between David and Absalom a little bit. And you read there's a little clue in there that David's got a place in his heart for Absalom, even though there's been turmoil and difficulty. So this is what's happened. And now Absalom is back in Jerusalem, and he begins to do something. He goes outside the city every day. He gathers men around him. He has some followers. He goes outside, and as people are approaching Jerusalem, 
you know, from the various places around Israel. And there he goes, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm up from the north country. He goes, ah, what, well, what are you doing here? He goes, well, you know, I've come to seek the king's advice on some stuff. And we're having a little bit of turmoil up there. He goes, oh, hmm. too bad. The king's really busy. He's probably, you know, if I was king, I would be able to, I would be able to help you out. I would make sure there was justice. Here, kiss my hand, bless you. Maybe someday. And of course, it's in maybe in people's mind that what happens when a king dies is, you know, the son, the, the, the son is the natural born heir or steps into that place. So for years, Absalom's doing this. He goes outside the city. He intercepts people as they're coming in and goes, you know, it's really too bad. You know, one day this, things are going to be a lot better, you know. Well, this progresses for a time. And then Absalom at some point goes down to Hebron, which is about 20 miles to the south. And now he's got enough of a popular following that he does basically a coup. And in a coup, you don't need necessarily the whole country on your side. What you need is the element of surprise. You need some followers and you have to take power quickly. That's what Absalom does. So he has some people around him, and now he's going to Jerusalem. And word gets to David, he goes, Absalom has gathered some people around him. He's coming. And that immediately clues him, if he gets here, he's not going to waste any time. The way you secure your power is you do away with anybody who's going to stand in the way. That includes David and his whole household. So suddenly, David and his household, not prepared for this, you know, they gather up everything and they make a run for it. And eventually they cross the Jordan. And this, this land you see here is a picture of the desert of Judah. That's what it is. And so they're out there. And uh, you know, David's away from his palace. He's tired and hungry. We read in there at one point that all the people who are traveling with him, and they're tired, they're hungry, and they're thirsty. And wouldn't you be running away? So he's stripped of his comfort, you know, maybe in those places, you know, you, you, you find yourself questioning, okay, what's God doing? Uh, you know, this isn't what I had planned, this isn't supposed to work out this way, and all that kind of stuff. Well, that's what's happened uh, to David. And now, uh, in addition to his life being turned upside down, uh, there's a sense that, you know, maybe God is far away. And much more so than we feel in our day and age, there is a real connection with Jerusalem and the temple and God's presence. And now David feels separated from that. And so, yeah, here's a picture of the Judean wilderness. Incidentally, this is the same wilderness that uh, Jesus is supposed to have gone into when he was hungry. The Bible very specifically says that Jesus... He went without food and water, and he was hungry. And that's to let us know that somehow Jesus wasn't doing one of his walk-on-water things, you know, where he could, he could survive a year without food and water. Look at me. It's no problem. No, he entered the desert as a man with appetites, with longings, and he didn't eat, and he didn't drink, and he was hungry. So I want to show you another desert. Now, this picture is not real good but I'm hoping you can identify. 
It's another place where people feel uh, hungry and thirsty and separated from God. See if you recognize it. Not a very good picture. Anybody guess? Eagle River. That's right. Eagle River is another place where people are hungry and thirsty and desperate for God. Maybe not hungry and thirsty in the sense that they need food and they need water. But their souls are hungry and thirsty. And I want to guess that maybe some of us in this room have certainly been there before, but maybe you even find yourself there this morning. I hope that as we look at the words of David from Psalm 63, that somehow you find encouragement from it. Okay? So what strikes you as you first start to read this? One of the things, it is intensely personal. You, God, are my God. Intently, earnestly, vigorously, I seek after you as my God. And uh, I want to say that this is a, an intensely personal kind of encounter that, that David is after, and he's going to remember his encounters with God, how God has been faithful. And the reason I mention that is because um, if you feel far from God, you may be a person that that hasn't always been the case. But you also could be a person here this morning who you've never felt like you've had an encounter with God. I just want to forewarn that this is primarily a person, David, as he writes, he's had an encounter with God before. God has been his God. And he says, God, you are my God. He's not saying, um, look, there's lots to choose from, but I decided I'd choose you. No, he's saying, God, you and I have had this ongoing relationship with you. We've had an encounter. I've had an encounter with you. You are my God. You are the one who has acted in my life. And if you're a person who you've never experienced that, I still think that there's something for you. As we look at the kind of God that David discovered his God was, can be your God too. So that you can have those kinds of personal encounters. But David's in a dry and weary land, and he's, he begins his prayer very personal. You, God, or my God. Unlike a lot of Psalms where it's very out there. It's, um, you know, Israel has done this. It's very third person. It's very about the God's majesty and his reign over the earth, and it's out there. But this one embraces God right from the opening line. You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. And the, and the earnestly, um, I, don't, I don't read in this psalm, when I look at it, I don't think there's a sense of, of uh, I have committed that I'm going to seek you because you're the right God to seek. He's compelled. He's comp- you are my God. You're the one who I have encountered. And I can't help it. I'm, I'm early, earnestly, intently... I'm looking for you now in this dry and weary place. So there's not ever anywhere in this, I don't, I don't sense, I mean, may God, maybe God speaks to you, but I don't sense that God is saying to me, this is, you know, this is the three or four things you ought to do. 
This is what David is being compelled because how he, God has revealed himself to him. David's compelled. You, God, are my God. So earnestly I seek you. One other point I want to make before we move on. The, the, the word God in there is Elohim. And it has the connotation of God Almighty. And here's another thing that I think draws me into this psalm a little bit. Because in Christendom, we talk about God being transcendent, the God who is overall, and we want to have a sense of that, that the story that we're a part of is bigger than just us, that, that God is bigger than we can completely get our hands around, that he's a mystery, and that he somehow has things in control. And he can do things that I don't fully understand because if God is limited to my ability to understand, he's not very smart. Just let me clue you. You know what I'm saying? But, but also there's that intimacy. And he, those are both almost contained in this. The God who came near. God, you are my God. You're the almighty God who somehow is my God at the same time. I feel like in my lifetime I'm better at, better at the almighty God the one who is overall and less sure how to experience the God who comes near and wraps his arms around me, who's personal in nature. Now, it could be, and I don't, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this. I love my dad dearly. He, he did some great things. One of the, he, he passed away about a year and a half ago now. One thing my dad was not very good at is, is being... Um, emotionally engaged with me. The sense that he was attuned and was pursuing my heart. That wasn't what my dad was really great at. He was good at some other things. But sometimes I wonder as a result that the idea of a God who pursues me personally so that I could say, you are my God. I have a harder time with that. And so I'm drawn to this psalm. So interesting, they're in this this desert wilderness and uh there's an acknowledgement of that. So he's, and anybody back then, if you said the Judean wilderness, they know exactly what you're talking about. It was a place people went to hide, and it was a desperate place because there is no food and water out there. And, and yet what, what David seems to be saying is, in this dry, parched land, it's you I really thirst for. And again, this is where it draws my heart in a little bit because... I want that kind of awareness of the deep longings in my heart. It also makes me wonder what the, the purpose of dry places sometimes. I mean, it's not, clearly it's not just to deal with sin in our life. If you're in a dry place, if you're in a really difficult place right now in your life, 
please don't automatically assume it's because you're sinning and God is punishing you. You know, we can think, well, God has his back turned on me because of something. Because Jesus, Jesus knew what it meant to walk in dry places. And here's one of the things I've noticed about my life, and maybe you find it true in your life, but I think of appetites, you know, desire for, for food, uh, my desire for sexuality, my desire for water, all those, they're just appetites, but there's things that are driving me deeper. And in fact, advertising has gone, you know, sometimes they'll dress you at the appetite level. You know, they show a really yummy pie. But a lot of times they've learned to go to the deeper places where we were looking for value. We're looking for significance. We're looking for meaning. And there's something about dry places sometimes. You remember my question at the beginning? What do you really want for Christmas? If you could have anything you want. And the dry places in our life sometimes, what it can do is go, well, I could have a, I mean, it'd be nice to have water and food, but really at this moment, would I be satisfied then? Is that really what I want? What do I really want? What do you really want out of life? And those dry places in our life can help those questions come to the surface and help us to respond, perhaps, to God who calls us and to, to hone our ability to just depend on God. And so David, in this desert experience, he's, he's feeling this. He says, you know, I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm tired. But I, what I recognize is what I really want is the hunger and thirst my soul feels. This particular translation, it, uh, it doesn't grab the word soul out of there. Four times it's used in, in the Hebrew language, the, the word for soul. And I'll, I'll just mention, too, this would be maybe a good time. It talks about a parched land. And if, if you're looking at the NIV, it might say like a thirsty. And uh, we as a church are making a transition and what happens is culture continually changes, and the language in culture continually changes. And in the NIV has been updated as of 2011, and we're gradually using that. So you'll notice sometimes that your NIV doesn't quite match the NIV on the screen. The, the, this Bible I have is 1984 edition as well. It's just a reality. It's, it's just a reality of how when time changes and language changes, so the newer NIV simply tries to use a more contemporary use of our language, number one. And number two, it corrects some of the, uh, some of the doctrinal things that were issues with the original NIV, none of which are a big deal. But I just thought I'd say that in passing. Now, with that distraction out of the way, where was I? <laughs> My... Um, this one does pick up, I thirst for you, my whole being longs for you. So, you know, your, your translation, my, my body thirsts for you, my soul hungers, or my body hungers and my soul thirsts. The idea of it is, is David's aware that the whole force of his being, it's not just a spiritual hunger. He doesn't have his life compartmentalized. Well, my body's thirsty, but my soul, you know, his whole being 
finds that he's longing for the presence of God in a dry and parched land where there is no water. At, at this point in the psalm, um, this is a concept that I want us to think about a little bit, but David's going to start remembering. So he says, I have seen. And so he's thinking back of his personal encounters with God. And uh, the sanctuary, the holy place, some translations, that I have seen you in your holy place and beheld your power and your glory. And, you know, there's a lot of different questions people ask like okay what is he talking about what sanctuary is this what power what glory well one possibility and i'll just mention it because i i like it but i don't anyway so he's in the judean wilderness and perhaps like you and i have never seen before he can see the stars and the heavens are are declared sometimes as the place where god dwells and so out there, he's seeing on display the God's power and his glory. So that's one possibility. Uh, another possibility is just that in, in David's interaction with, with God, as he's lived his life, he's seen God act powerfully numerous times, beginning with, with his fight against Goliath. And he makes a pronouncement even before that happens that he goes, I mean, he's basically... This, this is an abomination. I mean, you can't let this guy just curse the holy nation of Israel and, and, and her God. And so I'll go out and fight. And so he, he experiences the power of God in the things that he has done. He's been a mighty warrior. He's become a king who is feared over the whole earth. But I think there's another possibility, too. And that is, I, I made mention of this a little bit earlier too, but I think David had significant worship experiences in the tabernacle. That they, through the prophets and through things that happened, that God spoke. And David, for him and for people of that, of that day, God's primary emphasis of their presence was the Ark of the Covenant, which sat in the tabernacle. And, and he would, through different ceremonies and the seasons and through different military, that was always the place you came back to reorient. It was God who set us free. It was God who gave us victory. It is God who sustains us. And it's interesting that um, when he was running away from Jerusalem and running away from Absalom, because in his court you have secretaries, you have your priests, you have these people who serve you, and, and a couple of the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant. They're bringing it with them. And this is what David says, and this is in Second Samuel. He says, Then the king said to, to Zadok, Zadok, Take the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. There was something about being in the presence of God for David was very significant. And at least if this story is, is the story that's being reflected, then, then David has a, almost a physical, like, I just miss being where I know there's the, the God's presence is. 
I have seen your power and your glory. David has seen that there is just this one true God. In a, in a, a time in, in the earth when there's multiple myriads of gods that different nations and different people worship, God is the one true God. I have seen your power and your glory. So one of the things that make me wonder is, as I read that, how, how, am, I, how am I going to experience the power and the glory of God. I'm not going to go see the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. How are you and I going to have those kinds of experiences that we can remember, that we can conjure up? I don't know if I have a great answer for that. I feel like the way that I'm wired, I'm very wired for very practical, you know, everyday kinds of solutions and common sense kinds of things. And if you're wired that way like me, the danger is, is you don't leave room for God to display his power and his glory. One thing I would say is, is we have to be careful that we don't go about life and leave God as part of, part of the overall solution. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plan this way, and I'm going to talk to these people and if all else fails, maybe if I say a couple of prayers, God will come through. Where are those places in your life where you say, God, I'm going to be wholly dependent on you here. If you don't show up, if you don't come through, then so be it. That's what David says in this situation. Just after he says to return it, he says, but if he says... I'll read back up. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring me back and let me see it and his dwelling place again. But if he says, I am not pleased with you, then I am ready. Let him do with me whatever seems good to him. Where do we have those places in our life where we say, whatever he does, whatever he seems good to him, that's good with me. I'm ready to live under that. Maybe that will provide opportunities for us to see the power and the glory of God. One final thing about that real quick is God's holiness was seen to be in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. Where is it now? My heart, my life can be the holy dwelling of God because of Pentecost. All right. So it's interesting to me that this psalm, there's other places, other psalms where there's a completely different expression. Just as much God's word, no more less spiritual. Please hear me in this. So David wrote Psalm uh, 22, which starts off, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, honest expression and there's faith even expressed, there's desperation and faith expressed in that psalm as well. But in other places in the psalms, David says, look, you know, if, if, if I go down to Sheol, if I go down to the grave, then who will praise you? It's like he's bargaining for his life. He's like saying, look, if you, if you rescue me, if you save my life, then I will be one who can praise you. But if, but if I go down to the grave... See, but here's a different expression. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. As David is reflecting, 
he's remembering how God has acted. And this is how he's compelled to respond this time. He's in a desert place. Things are not going well. His life is in danger. His family is screwed up. He's tired and hungry. But God has demonstrated to him over and over again his loving kindness, his enduring love. This, this word for love is translated loving kindness or steadfast love. It's this enduring love that's always there. And David, in the absence of being in his palace, in the absence of being you know, in the seat of power at that moment, in the absence of having security in his life, he says, you know what's better than all that? It's a drop of the true, unadulterated love of God. It's better than that. I've tasted it. It tastes better than that. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I want to challenge you. Have you ever experienced in some form or fashion the intense, passionate love of God for you personally? In other words, it's great. God is all-powerful, but he's intimately passionate. My wife and I were, I tried to find the psalm. My wife and I, we read through the psalm recently, and I was just somehow, you know how sometimes the scripture just hits you, and just the, the love and compassion of God, I, I anointed you, I, I, I created a place for you. I, it was talking about God's love for Israel, but what came through was the character and nature of God's love, the intensity, the passion of it. See, if you're a person like me, it's very easy to think God's love is sort of robotic. You know, you, you put in the coin, you get something out. There's not passion. There's not an intensity to God's love that helps us to understand why he gets angry at sin and destruction. God's love is a passionate love. Now, we, uh, some of us recently went to a men's retreat, and one of the things that we did at that men's retreat, uh, well, one of the things the speaker mentioned he talked about eBay. You guys are familiar with eBay, right? And one of the great things eBay does is it tells you the true value of things. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever, I've done this, I, you know, I want to sell something, so I go into eBay and see what it's selling for. It gives you some idea of, of, the, uh, of the true value of something. And so I did a little something this week because I thought, you know, they've offered some weird things on eBay before, organs, and, and people have offered their souls, so... I thought, why not? Uh, definitely used. Uh, the 43 years, 290. That's a little bit optimistic, but I prefer to be that way versus pessimistic. And, um, you know, if you were to read the condition, right? You know, some, they have a description in there. Undoubtedly, it would be, uh, you know, it might say some, th- some things about my personality that are fun and, and why people like me, but it would also have to include that there's lots of blemishes, that I've lied before, that I've cheated before, that I've broken promises, that I've lusted, that I've been selfish, that I struggle with being lazy, that I struggle with being disconnected. I mean... To be on it, right? Because I don't want to get a bad seller rating when I sell myself. <laughs> and I, you know, I start off with a, I don't know if you can see it, but it's a 99 cent bid. But here's the thing. This auction is actually over. 
You know what I'm saying? God bid everything he had on me. The life of my, my son, my perfect son, from eternity past, who lives in perfect community, his life for mine. You see, have you experienced that intense love? David has. And so that's why he can say, it's better than life. It's better than all the other things, I, the, the peripheral things I think I want. It's the, it's the love of God that motivates me. You can see why he begins um, he begins to break into worship. And I don't know if we are at the past this phrase. I don't think we have. I gotta get caught up in my notes here. Yeah. So he begins he begins to worship and I'm gonna move, go ahead and move to the next one. How many people went away hungry on Thanksgiving? I'm just curious. Anybody? And how many people did like I did, which is I purposely made sure I was kind of hungry, you know, so that I didn't feel as guilty. And now I still, when I went to bed on Thursday night, I thought, oh boy, I ate a little bit too much. You know what I'm saying? But, but what we do, even people who watch what they eat, boy, on Thanksgiving, it's like, you know, this... This isn't a time to watch. This is a time to go for the marrow, for the fatness. This is a feast. That's what this verse is talking about. A soul feast. Doesn't that sound good? My soul will be satisfied as though I ate nothing but the best. The richest, most delicate. mm. You know what I find fascinating about that? Is in four verses, David goes from... He goes from, my soul thirsts and hungers for you. Four verses later, I will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. How did he get there? How can you and I get there? He did two things. I want you to see this. Well, let me, let me take you through a progression. First thing is he acknowledged his hunger and thirst. He got in touch with his longings. That's the first thing he did. Secondly, he begins to remember what God has done. That's a very key concept throughout the Bible. That we recount what God has done. Rather than assume that God has... Have you ever seen seen people who are just like maybe newly in love and they're very insecure and every moment they got to go back and it's like, I love you. Well, I love you too. Mm, loves and kisses, you know what I mean? It's like a mature love is we know there's this, there's this sense of enduring. And so, so what we do is we remember, we recount all the things that God has done. And that's what he begins to do. And as he recounts, he remembers God's unfailing love. His unfailing love. And he moves him to worship. And not a worship just of the mind, but a worship of the body. My lips will praise you. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time on your own you worshiped God out loud? God, you are my Lord and Savior. 
what I find is that I can kind of think and have thoughts, but they just swirl around so fast that there's something about speaking something out loud that plants it. And it's been shocking sometimes. I tell myself, well, why don't you speak it out loud? You know, I'm, I'm having these thoughts. Maybe I'm confessing sin or something. Well, I need to speak this out. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wow, this is serious stuff. You speak it. And there's no getting around. I mean, you, it, it, it brings something concrete. God, I praise you as my God and Savior. So part of the way he can anticipate a soul feast is he's learned to worship God. He, he's been compelled and he's learned. And now he, he anticipates there's going to come a time when I experience a soul feast, the things that my heart, my soul really long for. Last couple of phrases. I'm going to invite the worship team on back. Go ahead and read. I'll confess that one of the things that I find sometimes in my own spiritual walk is I have this feeling like, God, I feel like I'm having to reach out for you. I'm having to hang on for dear life. I want a greater sense that you're hanging on to me. I love the balance of this in this phrase. From from David's perspective, he says, my soul clings it. It's cleaving, it's holding on, but really your hand, your hand upholds me. Your hand sustains me. One of the things we pray for all the time is that when we come together, that we would encounter the living God, the God who comes face to face, the God who wants to reveal He's almighty God, for sure. But he has passionate love for you individually. And um, if I could, I'm going to put up this last slide. As the worship team begins to play a little bit, I want to lead us in prayer, and then I want you to respond. And would you just, your own prayer in your mind, and begin with these words, these same words from Psalm 63. And perhaps you want to remember some of the good things that God has done. Perhaps you want to lead your heart to just be a worshiper, more of a worshiper of God because of His power, His glory, His love that He's revealed. Let's pray together. God, we always underestimate You. Your power is greater than we can imagine. Your love for us is greater than we can imagine. We commit ourselves, God, as we think about your goodness to be people who find life in you, who wait, who hunger, who thirst, who anticipate a soul feast anticipate life because of your goodness. In Jesus' name.